Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognize that the area where FBI radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. Hey, I'm Danny Stewart, and you're listening to All the Best. Growing up, my brothers and I spent long days in the surf with our dad, but I didn't share my dad's love of surfing. I hated the feeling of wet swimmers clinging to my skin, the salt stinging my eyes, and my arms and thighs being rubbed raw with board rash. The unpredictability of the waves made me anxious, and I hated the feeling of swallowing seawater. Which happened to me a lot, because despite all the time I spent surfing, I was really bad at it. Given the choice, I would have much rather spent my weekends and school holidays watching TV. But as much as I hated it at the time, I feel really lucky to have spent so much of my childhood at the beach. And I can still admit that there is something pretty magical about the ocean. Our show this week features stories from the coast. It's a repeat from 2012 when Georgia Moody hosted the show. We start the episode in 1975, where 14-year-old Shay goes where girls were not allowed, into the surf. But one day after a storm, things go terribly wrong. And a heads up that if you've gotten into some hairy situations in the waves, this first story might bring up some bad memories. Please listen with care. Greasy skin, pimples, long hair over foreheads. We stunk like the sea. We just smelt like sea and salt the whole time. Because what was the point of showering when you were in the ocean all the time? Any kisses were salty. Um, and we did share a few of those. Um, but girls at that time were there to go up to the shop and get the Chico Roll and the milkshake and not have a bite of the Chico Roll on the way back. Um, the rest of the girls on the beach were doing that. But I really was the only girl trying to get out behind the break on Browley Beach in 1975. And it wasn't met with generous invitation. He wasn't really a boyfriend, but we were very close. He was very tall and very strong. He was different. He was a bit more mature. And he was a really good friend. Apart from teaching me how to surf on the quiet, not quite after dark, but when there were less people, when there were less blokes on the beach. But he also sort of taught me a little bit about the law of boys and surfing. And if you talk to any surfer, they'll talk to you about initiation rights on the beach and behind the break and who can be out there and who can take off on someone else's wave and who can't. You know, there's protocol out there. Um, so in 1975, girls didn't go behind the break. It just wasn't, simply wasn't done. And that was a transgression and I paid for it. It was just a perfect, perfect day. And then later on that afternoon, I think a storm came over. We'd swum out into the rip, which you sometimes do, to get behind the break. 
Um, there wasn't very many people on the beach because the surf was quite flat at that point, but it got bigger, which, which is what happens with a storm often. The surf will get really big, and that's why you see all the surfers out there in the rain, because that's when the best surf often happens. It was still, you know, quite moderate. It, it, suddenly the weather changed, and maybe it was to do with the turn of the tide, and it washed us out. It, it washed us out quite far, and then it was really hard to get back in. It's quite a big rip. I was in the hands of this boyfriend of mine and doing what he was telling me. And, you know, he was telling me in no uncertain terms, you know, swim, Shay, swim. You know, move your bloody ass. you know. You're going to drown out here in between all of this gulping of water and gulping of air and absolute terror. He's managing to issue instructions, but the waves just kept getting me and I just kept going under. And he just kept putting his hand down to bring me up again so I could get some air. There's a part of me that just wanted to let go and let it happen. The force and the strength of water is so all-encompassing. And if you ask a surfer, you know, someone who has to surf every day for their well-being, they'll tell you that it's stronger than any drug. So there was a part of me that just thought I'd just open my mouth and let the ocean in. But my friend kept pulling me up and instinct happens as well. And we, we just got washed in with the whitewash, like a shell. <laughs> but my friend got me back in and he was just full of rage at the end of bringing me back in and he was pushing my head up and down under the water. Uh, like drowning me and cursing me, absolutely, because I'd scared him. And like it had been out behind the break when he saved me, I just thought, oh, I'll just open my mouth and let the, let the ocean in. It's just too hard. It's just too hard. And, um, of course, when I went limp, he thought he'd killed me and he plucked me out and wrapped me up in a towel and walked me home. It was just completely silent I said goodbye to him, he said goodbye to me, there was nothing said. But I never really went surfing again. In 2004, I moved to Sydney. I had been living up in the Byron Bay region and I came down to Sydney University to do my PhD. When, when my research started to turn to water, when <laughs> it all went to water and that's where I met Clifton Evers he was doing his PhD as well and his PhD was about surfing masculinities and disrupting accepted notions of masculinity and he's a very beautiful person he said look I'll come and take you I'll come and go surfing with you one day and I said well yeah I need quite a bit of help with that Cliff because you know I've had a few rough times in the surf Clifford hired a board from across the road at Queenscliff Beach down near Manly and Cliff had his surfboard and he was you know throwing it around like a lady's handbag because it's part of his body and it's very much part of his habit of life so he was extremely comfortable and I felt like an alien on a foreign planet. I think I might have even been crying I was so affected by what I was hoping to do that day um, and back in 1975, when we had come in from that near drowning, 
I had cut myself on a shell on the beach and there was a big tear in my thigh and I felt like my thigh was pulsing as I went back into the water that day. I felt like it had revisited me, it had come back. It was a storm brewing and it was really hard paddling out and he said, come on, we'll go around here near the, the rip and okay, all right, we'll swim out in the rip. So we did that, came round the back, got round the back and and waited for the for the wave and so many waves came and went and I was so scared I I couldn't I couldn't go on them in the end like the big daddy with the little kid that he was that day he just pushed me off and I realized I was going to have to catch that wave all the way into the shore I was pretty scared my heart was absolutely racing but the wave did all the work an absolute jubilation as I arrived at the shore Because it wasn't big surf, there was no one on the beach. It was just me and Cliff and another guy. And after I caught that first wave, he came up to me and he congratulated me. And he didn't know, but he could see that this was a big moment for this woman on this surfboard. I think for me it was huge relief. Because I think I'd carried that water trauma in my bones for all those years. And now I could, it was like I could breathe deeply again. I feel like I didn't really have a choice about water. It's like water commanded me as its servant and I've just responded all my life um, to the point where I wrote a doctoral thesis about it. So in the ancient Greek mythologies, um, the original water deity is called Metis and from her everything else sprung, according to me and my research. <laughs> you know, the, the Italians call it la passionata dell'acqua obsession for water in all its forms and I've always had that I am afflicted you know that's it's a calling it's a calling and you can't surfers get depressed if they can't get into the surf it's something that you simply have to do it's a second skin it's another world and it demands you it commands your presence it commands a shared presence and uh, who am I to argue with the gods? Shay Hawkes. She spoke to all the best contributor Kate Montague. As well as being an academic, Shay is a writer and she's written a fictionalised piece inspired by that real life story. We've got a link to it on our website, our new website, and a photo of Shay when she was young. That's allthebestradio.com. You're listening to All The Best, your weekly dose of homegrown audio storytelling and documentaries. Today we're focusing on the sun, the sand and the surf. It was 1970 and Gabriel Salas had just finished his university studies in Chile. He wanted to see the world and so he set off to hitchhike around South America from coast to coast. But what was meant to be your average student road trip became much more than that, an adventure of danger, politics and a whole lot of ocean. Zasha Rosen brings us this story, which has just a small language warning. Here's Gabriel. 
My friend and I, we started hitchhiking with the idea of getting first to Argentina, to northern Argentina, and then enter Bolivia, and then enter Peru, and then see, see how we went without any definitive plan. Gabriel Salas trained as a geologist, which is odd. Because, in the end, so much of his life has revolved around water. When he'd finished up his degree at uni in Chile, he decided he was going to hitchhike around South America. Almost exactly like Che Guevara, except he wasn't a doctor. And he didn't have a motorbike. Just him and his friend Hugo, hitchhiking north up the South American continent, all the way from Chile up to Ecuador. And my friend and myself, we thought that it would be really nice being geologists to go to the Galapagos Islands. To get to the Galapagos Islands, you go to a town called Guayaquil, and from there you take a boat across. The boat goes every three weeks. If you miss it, you just have to wait. That boat had just left. We were hanging around Guayaquil with not much to do. In those days, random people were pretty happy to have you come stay with them. Hitchhiking was still considered pretty wild and interesting. Plus, they told you all sorts of interesting stuff. We were staying at the place of somebody who told us, I know people who are even more crazy than you. Oh, there's three blokes down there in the wharf, and they reckon they're going to construct a balsa wood raft and sail all the way to Australia. At this point, I should probably explain, a lot of people were actually quite eager to cross the Pacific in a raft. There was this Norwegian guy, Thor Handal, he went across to Polynesia in a raft in 1947 to prove the Polynesians might have got there that way. All sorts of people had read his book when they were kids. And now, some of them were grown up. One of them was called Vital, the leader of this theoretical expedition. And the other three were his crew. And we went and we've met those guys. And they were tying up the logs together, constructing a raft. And we said to them, do you want us to give you a hand in tying up logs and all that? The reply was, yes, but I tell you, we have four people. In the rafts, it has been designed in such a way that you cannot take more than four people. They helped them build the raft for almost three weeks, and then the ship to the Galapagos came back. It left at seven in the morning. And at 6.30, we saw Vital coming to the wharf. And we said, oh, how nice from Vital, you know, he's coming to say goodbye again. And he said, Gabriel, were you a little bit drunk yesterday when you were talking to me that you would like to be on the expedition? I said, no, 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 I was sober. I would love to go. And then he said, okay, you take your rucksack out of that ship and you stay here with us here in Guayaquil. Finish up the raft and we'll sail to Australia. It was still about at least three weeks before it could be finished at that point when, when, when he said that to me. It needed to have the masts and the sail put up. It was seven one-meter-wide logs of balsa wood tied up with hemp rope, and uh, he had an ancient, very primitive system of steering, not depending on a tiller, but depending on keels, which is, are called guaras. The guara is a moving keel. You insert it in between the logs of a raft, and if you wanted to turn left, you inserted more in, in the left and you created more friction and then you could sail in a certain angle with the wind. We could sail perpendicular to the wind. 
thanks to these skills, these guaras. If the wind was coming from the north, you could go west or you could go east, depending on how you inserted your square sail, because we had a square sail, and how you moved the keels in between. We tied up the logs, finished constructing the raft, and we left Guayaquil in, I think it was in April 1970. After seven days of sailing towards Australia, Vital in the evening finished doing his navigation calculations, and he said our first objective of avoiding the Galapagos Islands has been achieved. We celebrated, we had a couple of bottles of champagne. We drank two bottles of champagne, I remember that. And that night I was on the three to six shift. When you finish your six o'clock shift, it was daylight already, so you could see. And I tied up the sail and went to have a wee. And when I finished having a wee, I looked in front of the raft and there was a blooming island in front of us. Not too far, only, say, 10 kilometers. All of a sudden, the wind stopped, and there was a strong current that made us drift the whole day towards the island. And we changed the position of the waras, but there was no wind, so we couldn't sail. We were heading to what we found out later on was Isabela, the biggest island of the Galapagos Islands. And the island on that side, on the southern side, is about a 500-meter-high cliff. And the big Pacific Ocean waves, they hit the cliffs. There's no beach, no rocks, nothing. Just they hit directly the cliffs. And we came closer and closer and closer. And we were rowing, trying to get out. But there was no way that four guys, without proper oars, using bamboo as oars, there was no way we could move much the raft. The current was much stronger. When we came within 100 meters of the cliffs of Isabella, I thought, that's it, we're going to lose our skin here. I started making jokes about that. And the, the other guys, the same way, you know, we are, we are f man. There's <laughs> nothing we can do. Who told you to make rafts with that? <laughs> and he would laugh, and we were inevitably going to be taken by the waves and smashed against the cliff. And then all of a sudden, a little bit of wind started to blow. We put up the sail and we started moving and we got out. When it was night time, we had managed to leave the island behind. That time, yes, we did leave the Galapagos Islands behind, but we were very, very close to, to death that day. It wasn't always a problem, though, when the wind stopped. Sometimes it was great. Sometimes when we were becalmed and there was no waves at all, it was like standing, like hanging in the middle of space. It was like standing in a mirror. You could see stars below and above you. You were surrounded by stars from every direction. You were like in ultra space. It was, you felt like if you were, I don't know, a thousand kilometers away from Earth floating in the universe. It was amazing. Particularly when there was low moon. When there was no moon in the sky, you, and it was a calm day, a calm day or a calm week, because those calms last sometimes a week. After one week in which you, you can hear fish jump out of the water two kilometers away, or three kilometers away, just the splash that it made. made you really feel like you were out, out in space. It's really fantastic here. We left Guayaquil in, I think it was in April 1970, and towards November 1970, we arrived in Australia, Mololuba. There was hundreds of people waiting for us already there. 
We crossed 18,000 kilometers from South America to Australia. And when we arrived in Australia, the raft could have kept sailing. It was in such a good condition. Kept going further. But we stayed, as, as I said, for about a month, did a lot of publicity for the raft, for the expedition, and then we returned home. And that was the end of Gabriel's adventures. Or, at least, almost. I took a job lecturing in geology at, at university. Things had changed in Chile while Gabriel was away. The first Marxist government ever to be elected had been elected, and this was a big change for conservative Chile. But despite all the changes back home, Gabriel still found regular life a little slow. Life full of routine started to become very quickly very unbearable. And then an invitation came to me from Mexico. And there was an invitation written by Vital. It said, Gabriel, we are going to do a new raft expedition. But this time we are not going to take one raft across the Pacific. We are going to take three rafts. There was a reason they were taking three rafts on this new expedition, now called Las Bolsas. You know, Spanish plural of raft. They wanted to prove something new. If you have a fleet of three rafts, or ten rafts, or hundred rafts, you can transport culture. And then we did the crossing with the three rafts. During the day, we would be, say, probably about half a kilometer away from each other. And uh, when the day started, you know, when daylight started, when, and when the daylight ended, just before that we get... Sometimes, um, basically, we could jump from raft to raft. It took us roughly the same time to sail with three rafts. And when we arrived in Australia the second time with the three rafts, we arrived in Balina. There were hundreds of people waiting for us. A couple of days after we arrived, we got told that Gough Woodlam, 1973, wanted to talk to us. And Woodlam sent us a plane, and that same day in the evening, the plane returned us at Balina. But we had lunch with Woodlam. We met Mr. Anthony, Mr. Fraser. But the interesting thing is that during the lunch, Woodlam said, I want to talk to the Chilean members of this expedition. And there were only two. So after lunch, he took us to a separate room with an interpreter, and he said to us, look, I don't know if you know what's happening in Chile. On the 11th of September, there was a military coup. General Augusto Pinochet took power in Chile. That we have horrible reports from our embassy and our consulate in Santiago. But people from the left have disappeared by the tens of thousands. They are torturing tens of thousands. They are killing people in the street when they break the curfew. They are even burning books, that's what Whitlam told us. And he said, if you need to stay in Australia, Please ring this phone number. And he gave us a handwritten phone number on a piece of paper. We got letters and we spoke with friends in Chile and we found out that yes, because I had been a president of the geology school when I was at university and other reasons, I'd been always in the left. Yes, so the friends advised not to return to Chile if we could. So about two or three weeks after Whitlam gave us a piece of paper with a phone number, we were ringing that phone number. And that's the way we became... Probably the first refugees, Chilean refugees in Australia, in November 1973. I was asked so much about Las Balsas that all of a sudden Gabriel Salas was not Gabriel Salas anymore. He was Gabriel from Las Balsas. 
So I had to refine my identity again and continue my work. The two expeditions I did produced a fundamental change in me. And uh, yeah, I was looking for that type of activities and I was looking for, yeah, for, for drastic situations. I think I, thanks to Las Balsas, I became a humanitarian worker. I became a groundwater exploration geologist. First in the territory, in Darwin, then for, for five years or so in Alice Springs, where I did a lot of work for Aboriginal communities. And then the Australian government uh, called me and said, since you have done this really good job in, in the Northern Territory, uh, would you like to do the same work for the Bushmen in the Kalahari in Botswana? And I accepted that job. And I went to Botswana with my wife and my two children. We stayed there for two years. And then people started looking for me from the Red Cross, from UNHCR. I was in Sri Lanka. One time after tsunami, I've been in Sri Lanka three times. I'm still working in, in, in solving problems of people made vulnerable because of wars or earthquakes or tsunamis or whatever. And I've been working like that ever since. Anyhow, my name is Gabriel Salas. I'm a hydrogeologist specialized in groundwater exploration and I crossed the Pacific Ocean twice in rafts. That's the summary of my life. Gabriel Salas, Zasha Rosen produced that piece. And you can actually see the raft in which Gabriel travelled to Australia that second time. It's tucked away in a tiny museum in Ballina in northern New South Wales. We've got photos of the rafts and more archival material on our website, allthebestradio.com. That was Coast to Coast, an episode we first aired back in 2012, when Georgia Moody hosted the show and Jordana Caputo, Eliza Salos and Jesse Cox were the executive producers. You've been listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.